This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the Be Here Now Network, and my guest today is Dr. Miles Neal. Miles, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Chris. I'm looking forward to uh, having some time with you. You and I, this has been a long time in the making, so I'm really psyched to jump into this with you. But first things first, just want to share your bio with our audience for anyone who's not familiar with your work. Uh, Dr. Miles Neal is among the leading voices of the current generation of Buddhist teachers and a forerunner in the emerging field of contemplative psychotherapy. He is a Buddhist psychotherapist in private practice, assistant director of the Nalanda Institute for Contemplative Science, and faculty lecturer at Tibet House U.S. and Will Cornell Medical College. Dr. Neal's approach to personal healing and transformation is informed by contemplative neuroscience and integration of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist mind science, depth psychotherapy, and current neuroscience. His free podcasts and YouTube videos have reached thousands, expressing ancient Buddhist principles and practices in a modern, accessible, and impassioned way. Dr. Neil's new book, Gradual Awakening, The Tibetan Buddhist Path of Becoming Fully Human, critiques modern materialism and explores the Tibetan Buddhist gradual path to awakening based on the art and neuroscience of visualization. And with that said, again, Miles, welcome to the show, and I'm very excited to talk to you about this book today. Awesome. Let's jump in. I love it. So, First things first, I mean, we can we can go a number of different uh, ways with this conversation. We're going to jump into the book, but for anyone not familiar with you, I like to um, give my guests a, a little time to introduce yourself as far as what led you to your line of work, to the Buddhist path, to uh, con- contemplative neuroscience, things of that nature. And you can start as far back as you want. I, I, I hand it over to you. Well, doesn't doesn't it always start with tremendous suffering? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, for for me, it was it's no different. I think uh, most people that find them their way into the uh, to the spiritual world come by way through the threshold of of some uh, unfortunate circumstance, and I'm no different in that regard. Sure. Uh, as far as I've been sentient, conscious uh, in in knowing that something was amiss or awry, I can remember that happening at least 15, 16 years old. You know, I grew up uh, the son of uh, um, uh, a British uh, textile trader and a a Levantine uh, uh, interior designer. We were, I was born in Singapore and raised in Hong Kong. And uh, already had uh, a very multicultural, multi-heritage, and uh, a lot of privilege and fortune, and living overseas and attending good schools and uh, having a lot of opportunities. But uh, but something um, something was sort of a, there was a thorn in the mind. Let's put it that way. At a very early age, and uh, you know there was alcoholism in my family, and there was a lot of conflict and chaos and tumult. And really no, no spiritual inclination and also no um, 
emotional kind of balance or uh, maturity. Mm. And I, I was struggling early. And, uh, and I was fortunate to find a couple of teachers in high school whom had uh, had the privilege to be raised in India and were teaching religious studies, Buddhism, and I even had one faculty member at the high school who had been exposed to Stan Groff, who was one of the forerunners in the uh, consciousness studies movement. And so between the three of these teachers, I got some exposure to Buddhism and and some psychology. And, and, and really, I, I don't know if I would have made it without them. They became more than just teachers. They became emotional supports and friends. And so my path really starts early on in Asia, uh, lost and in a lot of pain and very confused and without a perspective to assist me, really. I mean, you know, the thing is, uh, well, one thread that will carry through all the way through the current book is that uh, modern materialistic culture was uh, failed me like, yeah. because uh, I definitely had achieved the successes, one would say, that are billed as the, you know, the sort of um, orientation for anybody in a modern materialistic world to have family and to have a good job and to have uh, money and to have opportunity. But then, you know, there isn't really anything said about what's happening on the inside of one's mind and what's happening on the inside between family members. And so that, that, that paid the ultimate price for me. And if it weren't for finding mentors very early on in my story, whom could provide some structure and understanding and meaning and purpose for the interior internal world, I, 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 I may not be here. You know, there, yeah. there's no guarantee that I would have made it, uh, literally. Uh, yeah. So, so I guess that's where uh, the story starts. You know, and and it continues on in that vein. I, I I can say that I have been a seeker most of my life. I have been dissatisfied uh, with with the with the paradigm of materialistic culture and what it purports to be. You know, the sort of uh, agenda of what a life is is meant to be oriented towards mm. and uh i found my way to college and instantaneously found these archetype you know they ended up these archetypes have been around me since i was 16 the archetype of a an elder who is a wisdom lineage holder who provides uh access to a doorway through which an entire new culture paradigm wisdom tradition bestows some meaning and, and a new alternative orientation for my life. So by the time I'm 18 and I'm at college, I meet a zany, zany Zen psychoanalyst who had used, you know, ta taken over the blackboard on our first day of class and across the blackboard had, had written, uh, you know, all suffering comes from I, me and mine. Mm. And so, uh, I was like, what the fuck is that? I mean, <laughs> so, so, uh, so I, you know, I ended up, uh, having a very deep friendship with him that went well beyond, uh, the classroom. We were, you know, we would share stories together at his house in Duxbury, Massachusetts, and he would invite me to his Zen garden. And eventually he took me to the Zen center in Providence, Rhode Island, where we would do sitting meditation together. And, and we together crafted a, um, undergraduate thesis that would, uh, that would help me sort of align my interests in Buddhism and psychology, but escape the, the drudgery of, of the curriculum at large. So I, I basically did independent field work right out of the gates in college and it eventually, two years in or three years in my junior year abroad, I was in India as part of my field research for this independent study. And there I was at 20 years old in the Burmese Vihar, which if you're not familiar, the, Bur the Burmese Vihar in Bodh Gaya, India, mm. is, was in its heyday the place where anyone who now is a first generation meditation pioneer in the West had spent time, including Ram Das, Sharon Salzburg, Joseph Goldstein, Christopher Titmus, you name it, they had all made their way through the Burmese Vihar in Bodh Gaya, where the Buddha gained enlightenment. And at the time, I didn't really re recognize the significance, but I was definitely following Joseph Campbell kind of inner voice about, uh, you know, follow, fo keep following the breadcrumb trail, even though you don't exactly know where it's leading. I remember uh, before heading out to Bodh Gaya, my family and I 
you know, took the old family atlas, and this was before the time of internet and Google Maps, and we took an old dusty atlas out, we set it on the dining room table and tried to find Bodh Gaya, and couldn't fucking find it, you know? Right. <laughs> so, so I was definitely heading into the unknown, uh, but something was calling me, you know, the, all, all the all the college uh, pamphlet on the college abroad program said was, you know, meditate with the monks at five in the morning where the, where the Buddha gained enlightenment. Uh, and so I went, I went and, uh, and, uh, it was so, uh, it was so powerful and so profound because there, I think I really found, uh, a footing in a culture that saw the world in a completely different way. And, and there I found a lot of the answers to the questions that I had been pining and mining over, uh, for, for several years at, uh, leading up to that point. And, uh, it was by no means easy or pleasant as, yeah. as you're very well familiar with in your writings about, you know, it's not about delight and it's yeah. not about, uh, feeling good. It's, it's really about discovering something real. And yes. I contracted dysentery several times. I was living in subpar conditions. Um, mm. but I was amongst people who were searching for truth and, finding teachers and ways of dealing with life that actually finally registered and resonated for me. So that takes us to 20 years old. I don't know if you have any follow-up to that, and maybe some part of your story really resonates with that part thus far. Yeah, actually, I have two points, and then I want to carry on because this is exceptionally fascinating to me. I always love hearing people's stories, especially when you have these wonderful journeys, and and, uh, I appreciate your... um, your take on Joseph Campbell and, and following that. But so I, I mean, I've resonated with so much of what you said, but two points I wanted to quickly unpack before we jump in. Well, one point, one question, I guess is I really appreciate how you were saying earlier that, um, you had gained as far as material success, you know, as much as you could have asked for, um, so to speak, yet you still had this sense of dissatisfaction with, within your, human experience and I think that's really important because a lot of times in uh, conversations I've had with people they don't understand how people that have that material success can experience suffering or dissatisfaction you know they 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 liken that to more of the someone from my world let's say maybe that that's hit a rock bottom with addiction or you know just was abused or raped or is living in a third world country with no roof over their head and starving to death. And, and of course that is all part of it. But, um, you, you look at people like Robin Williams or Philip Seymour Hoffman or musician wise, like Chris Cornell. And I mean, this list goes on and on of people who could have, or couldn't have probably asked for anything more material wise, but that is in no way a reflection of what's going on in their, just like you said, their inner world and the dissatisfaction that they're experiencing. And, and, you know, these were people that some of them were married and and with children and the family life looked like it was well from the outside. But until you, you walk in that person's shoes, you really don't know what's going on. So I, I appreciate you, you mentioning that because I think that's something that is so often, so often overlooked. And, you know, somebody listening right now might think, well, no, duh, that, that, that makes obvious sense. And I'm glad, but unfortunately there's still so many people in this world that don't understand that, that suffering is suffering, period. I don't care who you are, where you come from. Pain is pain. Suffering is suffering. So that was one point I wanted to make before I have a question. I didn't know if there's anything you wanted to add on to that. I mean, I guess I would just temper that. I believe that suffering is suffering, but I think there are relative different degrees of suffering. I guess the the main thing that I want to say is that I was particularly privileged and fortunate, and there are a lot of people that don't have even the material uh, uh, benefits. Uh, And so uh, I wouldn't, I'm not of the mind that, I mean, I think we require a certain. standard of living or quality of life based on material world that I I think uh, that's part of our shared humanity. You know, uh, there are certain requirements and, 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 uh, and short of that, I think that there is inevitable suffering that comes with that. And I I think we shouldn't 
uh, sort of bypass the realities of living a materialistically comfortable. But I guess the, then, then, then added to that is the fact that we also are psychological or spiritual beings. And right. uh, I think, I mean, I think it is one of the, the threads in the book, which is, you know, we are largely a, a materialistically oriented society where the standard of quality of life is based on what we have. Right. And there we are, are absent a tradition of inner contemplation that reminds us that we are more than matter. And so we are bereft of understanding how to work with our feelings and, and seeing us in a much more multi-life perspective. So in that way, we're impoverished. You know, we're, right. we're psychologically impoverished and and so I think I mean we can't we can't we can't underestimate the hardship of people who are both psychologically impoverished and materially impoverished. I think that would be the worst case scenario. Right. Um, on the other hand, I have been around people who are materially impoverished but have a spiritual inclination, and they tend to do a little bit better than the people that I at least work with in psychotherapy, for example, who are materially well off, but, but emotionally and psychologically impoverished. So I think those complexities, they're, they're very interesting. Uh, um, but I think it's worth noting there, there's a mul there's a intersection of complexities there. Absolutely. And I think that's a great point. And I, the area I was addressing, and I should have been more clear, certainly would have been the psychological, um, that you were just speaking of. I, I speak from my own experience and, and many others that I know that, um, see for me, I was always, and still am middle to lower class. And so I've never, I've never gone without, but I've always my entire life lived paycheck to paycheck. Um, I, and I'm grateful for every single thing I have. But when I look back at experiences of complete and utter depression, where I felt I literally could not pull myself out or terrible panic attacks or the work I do now, particularly at a, uh, a mental health and well-being facility with, uh, young adults ages 13 to 20 where they come from privileged backgrounds the majority of them this is a private care facility but you know the cuts on their arms or the suicide attempts are just as real regardless of the money mm. that they have surrounding them so you're, you're so right and it is important to know that there are varying degrees on, on both sides and of course it is certainly much easier to start contemplating um, you know, the, the divine interconnected uh, relationship of all things in this manifest, you know, world that we're experiencing when we're not starving. You know, exactly. So yeah. I absolutely I know to a certain extent that it is privileged in a way to even talk about that. But very good point that you make. There are varying degrees. I think for me, it's just the experience of depression that I've both personally been through and others I know I wouldn't wish that on anyone. I don't care yeah. who it is. You know, just being locked in that place of despair is horrible where literally you want to die. You know, you, you actually yeah. really want to die. And, and I know so many people that have taken their lives and I've tried myself. And um, so I, I get I get. And I actually sides. think that it's not uh, all that uncommon. I've had my sure. own suicidal thoughts and um, and they've been in my family. So I mean, yeah. I, I think probably there's a stigma around talking about it openly. But I, I, I think if you dig down, if you're mm. if you know, as a human being, I don't think that it's all that uncommon or rare to have these kinds of thoughts and experiences. I, but I, I think the bigger question is, is the the bill, mil, the, bil, the bewilderment to which you uh, respond to my story about how, you know, some people find it so uncanny that someone can achieve or uh, be, be bequeathed a material success, mm -hmm. uh, but still have um, despair or existential angst, I think, I think is part and parcel the lie of our, of modernity and mm -hmm. of our, our culture's uh, implicit agenda that fails to 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 uh, it it sort of fails to uh, to remind people of the realities that if you get on the treadmill of success that along with the, the along along the way and certainly if you finally achieve it you 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 may be disappointed you know yeah. they don't they don't tell you that when you're climbing the ladder or getting your degree or or whatever you know certainly the marketing pitch or position of our culture wants to uh, obfuscate that reality from us but I think you know I, I don't think that 
internal response to a world that has become so consumeristic mm-hmm. is all that unique. I think as shared human beings, we know that something is um, is off. We know yeah. that achieving and uh, fame and achieving uh, material success and wealth, uh, we we are discovering that that's not all there is to life. In fact those things can actually be a bigger pain in the ass. You know, I, think that, <laughs> yeah. I think that some of, I mean, I think if you talk to celebrities and they're very candid, being popular has paid a toll on mm-hmm. their privacy and having a lot of money means that you get paranoid about who's doing, you know, why the relationships that you have are there. You know, it, yeah. it, there is these hidden price tags to all the pursuits that we have as a materialistic society that no one wants to really talk about oh agreed agreed well and so you know something you mentioned the other point that uh i wanted to ask you to unpack a little bit and i think it it flows perfectly with what we're addressing is you were saying when you were in that school and um i believe you said it was taoist i i might have misheard you but uh or zen a teacher wrote on the board all suffering comes from i me and mine Mm. And uh, that's that's a very potent statement. And, you know, one that here we are having a conversation. We have our, you know, our our experience in non-dual teachings, regardless of the great wisdom tradition they may come from. But let's say someone's listening to this conversation and they hear that and they don't really have the context to surround it, um, which is often the case. Can you and this is big, but can you can you unpack that in whatever way you think would make it accessible for someone who's yeah. not all that familiar and i know that's an entire show and yeah I'm, I'm laughing because uh, we we might need we might need a, <laughs> <laughs> we might need a month-long retreat to unpack it and i know certainly, certainly i haven't uh, i haven't had uh, i haven't had a, an epiphany moment where i can say from the from the um, from the point of view of my gut where I live uh, that I've really understood it but I, I mean I think first and foremost as a very impressionable spiritually inclined seeker of 18 years old to walk and see something that per, per, you know profound yeah. or uh, provocative across a blackboard in, in white chalk may uh, made an impression and you know so you know years later looking back on the statement of course it really has to do with the fact that the whole entire orientation of our life is hinged upon a a lie a belief in our sense of self being a kind of fixed or autonomous or separate um entity if you will and if even if you just want to go newtonian and like there's some building block or atom that makes us who we are that's unrelated or um, uh, autonomous or separate Mm. uh, that's the great lie from which all our afflictions and disturbing emotions and reactions uh, happen and so they you know in many spiritual traditions um, they call it the mula klesha the the root affliction and as we know from the sort of point of view of uh, metaphor that you know if you if you just grab a weed from the top uh, it will grow back um, yeah. if you leave it if you leave the root in place you know so if you don't go deep or penetrative enough in your spiritual uh, analysis of what it is that's disturbing you and what it is that's causing pain right because that is the great unifier of all living beings is that nobody wants to have any pain okay yeah. and so the, the misguided amongst us think that if we just gather up uh, acorns and we have enough acorns that somehow that pain will go away. But that's why you find that even celebrities commit suicide. So right. that's that proves itself to be not far reaching enough. But then can you blame them because they're actually part of a culture where there is no really deep, profound methodology uh, for analysis to look any deeper than the immediate circumstance. So that's the great misfortune of our culture, yeah. is that we're bereft of, uh, of, of, of teachings and traditions that help orient us, not outward, but towards the mulaclesio, towards the, the, the places in our psyche where the deepest lingering axis mundi around which our suffering is stirred. So uh, that, you know, that's, 
that took a while to figure out. And I, I'm not, like I said, I mean, you can get these concepts. I feel like after 20 years of studying them, I can, I can share with them. I can, I can discuss them. I can understand them, but you know, I still live from a point of view of being alienated and mm. have my own share of greed and aversion and affliction. So I obviously haven't pulled out the weed at its deepest root, but at least I'm not confused about how I should spend my time. Right. Uh, yeah. I know where to look and it, it is, it takes it by, it takes a lot of work to, uh, to both expose and uncover the, the sensibility, this, this kind of distorted sensibility and really, and really work with the, the man with work, work with its manifestation. So, uh, but that is, but that's to me, that's an orientation of life where it's much better spent You see, I think, uh, we can get into this, but I mean, the, the, the alternative to a materialistic paradigm where you are outwardly focused on material gain versus a spiritual paradigm where you use your precious human life resources towards uprooting the fundamental psychological causes so that you could live much more expansively and harmoniously with your, your, your fellow beings and, and the planet at large. To me, is, is the paradigm shift that I think is possibly emerging after 300 years of living very reductionistically and materialistically. I think consciousness is taking um, a front seat after 300 years or so of science and reductionism, and it's making its resurgence after we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater in the age of reason, let's say, in Western Europe, when there was a time where we began with uh, religious authority and dogma and and uh, and and faith, blind faith, and then we had the emergence of as a as a as a kind of pushback. We had the resurgence of uh, reason, and with reason came science and technology and medicine and internet and sending people to the moon. But we we in giving up blind faith, we also cut our ties with spirituality. Yeah. And so now we're we are the, you know, seventh generation or so of uh, or more of of people who are marooned, essentially spiritually marooned in a world, a concrete world where we're on a treadmill. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's how I kind of see our predicament. We are growing. Uh, uh, there is a growing sense that we missed something. Mm. And you can, I think, when you teach, I'm sure you feel it. People are of, the crowds are bigger and bigger, and the the people that are coming, are they're they're looking for something, and it's not on offer at Whole Foods or on Amazon. Right. And uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, well, that's for me, you know, and I didn't have any context around it at the time, but going back to like 13, 14 years old. That's what uh, initially struck a chord right away the first time I was introduced to punk rock and hardcore music was it wasn't, you know, something for the masses. It was this raw, completely raw, energetic, uh, just passionate music uh, screaming about anti-establishment. And, you know, whether whether it's right or wrong, that's kind of besides the point. For me, it was just something deeper. And that was my introduction into looking, you know, beyond just the material world looking for something more and it's funny now that here I am 40 years old and if I go to a song or a satsang or teach I'm 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 meeting all of these people uh could be in their 20s 30s 40s but punk rock hardcore these things were their introduction because that was a natural or the spiritual path is a natural segue from them you know the for many people, that's their foot in the door. It's almost like, you know, marijuana is the gateway drug. Well, for a lot mm. of people, punk rock and hardcore was, or like you said, of course, suffering was. But what mm. led people to to be interested in this countercultural kind of lifestyle, their dissatisfaction with what popular uh, society has to offer. So, you know... Disillusionment. Exactly, right. And then, though, that crosses over into a lot of what is presented as spirituality today and and we're going to get into this in a second i laughed when i read mcmindfulness because i've used that term in my own books and that's something you talk about and i very much relate but you know as i was reading that it reminds me of uh one of the most well the lineage for me that's that resonates most deeply is that of advaita and 
going back to Ramana Maharshi and Nisargadatta Maharaj and then Ramesh Balsakar. Um, and, and it's essentially just non-dual teachings. So it's found in any of the great wisdom traditions. They all just have their own language around it. But Ramesh uh, talks quite a bit about, and this also is quite controversial, uh, but he says no one has av- ever been enlightened. Nobody, not a single person, has ever been enlightened. And the, the reason he says that, though, which I absolutely love, is because who is there to be enlightened? Right. Which circles back to that you know comment, all suffering cr- comes from I, me, and mine. There mm-hmm. literally is no separate self to be enlightenment. Enlightenment is all there is. It's just that we have these identities that are placed on them and not that that's wrong because it's what we were born with and what was instilled in us. But he goes on to talk about how, you know, this is not the sort of thing that is popular in cells. And you would look, he would give talks at his uh, his apartment in Bombay, India, and he's since passed, but he would have maybe 30 people there. And here's a person that had 10 books out translated in numerous different languages. Um, you know, so on that end of things, his message was reaching a wide audience, but it's not what people want to hear. You know, they want to hear this is how you do it. You, 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 you know, you here's five simple steps and you're going to be great. And but it's all about you. It's just essentially putting a bandaid bandaid on this um, body mind organism and and the thing that he would say and Nisargadatta would say uh, is that at the end of the day there's really nothing you can do to become enlightened it happens when it happens and so you know yes you there is comfort in doing these practices and of course you know I do them and I read the books these books all the time because they bring me comfort and they remind me to come back they make life easier to navigate as this body mind organism um but anyway so all that to say to kind of come back to make mindfulness is something i have written about and and does trouble me is that a lot of what is presented as quote-unquote spirituality today has been quite watered down and um and in some extreme cases which i've talked about on the show before has led to people not seeking out proper help but doing these kind of band-aid practices and um, there have been cases of people who have taken their own lives because they thought and were promised you know this is going to fix you when they needed much more care and psychiatric um, attention to what was happening so anyways make mindfulness you talk about it i would love to hear your thoughts on anything i just said or just make mindfulness in general um because it's something definitely that again i i appreciate you discuss well maybe we can thread it back in with the narrative of my story not to yes. make it about me but i know i provide some context by which how i came up with the term and coined the term make mindfulness because so we left off with uh india right so i'm in yeah. india 20 years 20, old yeah. i meet a teacher that, uh, I, I feel like my soul comes back to itself and finds a, uh, a paradigm and point of view and reference and orientation, if you will, for life that makes sense and resonates. And I'm still involved in this uh, undergraduate dissertation, um, where I'm basically doing field research to understand Buddhism. But, uh, as soon as I leave India, I head to Harvard Medical School to the Mind Body uh, Institute run by Dr. Herbert Benson, who was the author of The Relaxation Response and probably responsible for the first wave of really credible gold standard uh, scientific research on meditation. Mm. And uh, so that contrast of coming out of six months of India with the monks in a, mono- in a monastery, very simple life, even getting sick and being away from home and lonely but yet still feeling like I, my soul had found its place again and found its, uh, found its operating system, a reboot on its operating system. I came back to Boston and to the medical center where they were basically running clinical trials on uh, uh, using meditation. But I, I, there I found, you know, there I found what secular and scientific meditation looked like, mm. uh, which looked very different. You, you had very you know you had people in need of meditation but that weren't interested in the culture aspects okay yeah and they weren't interested in buddhism and they weren't interested in the buddha and what the buddha had to say about suffering and the psychology and the four noble truths and the you know more than more than just the simple breath work let's say that's 
the entry level most reduced point of reference about relaxing was all that people were getting and really frankly all they may have needed for their for their predicament and so i had to kind of reconcile these two experiences on the one hand what i felt to be the full picture of a different way of living and on the other a a kind of reduction that was accessible to people given where they were mm. and you know it just happens to be for from a personality standpoint i i had been so deeply impacted by what i saw in india that part of me felt a little like people were getting robbed um, I, I don't share that opinion now because now I, I much, I very much understand the, you know, the slogan that different strokes for different folks, you know, people need different things at different times in their life. And Buddhism is not for everybody mm -hmm. by a long shot. And also Buddhism is not, you know, innocent of its shortcomings, uh, by any, by any means. But sure. at the time having such a profound, you know, because what I saw in India was a, an alternative paradigm to materialism, whereas what I saw at Harvard Medical School was an extraction of a meditation technique placed back into into a materialistic world so that people could, you know, find it palpable and useful. And actually, you know, the research was clear, you know, people get better, you know, yes. so yeah. can't argue with that. Right, right. But from, I guess, from a young person's mind trying to reconcile these two things, uh, it it followed me for several years until I started seeing, you know, from Benson, the wave of, of research then migrated towards Kabat-Zinn. And from Kabat-Zinn, we got the mindfulness revolution. And with right. the mindfulness revolution, we had thousands and thousands of research paper and documented clinical hours of of benefits of meditation and, uh, you know, very well done published studies on a gamut of uh, health indices that all were saying the same thing, but to me, they weren't addressing this fundamental paradigm problem. And so, and I also, you know, there was a there was a ten year period where every other book that was coming out in the spiritual world was something on mindfulness, mindfulness for this and mindfulness for that. Right. And and, and also, they weren't very, you know, and programs developed, and these things weren't cheap. And so suddenly, I I I, I mean, I just had a skept, a little bit of a skeptical stance. While the, on the one hand, many more millions of people were being exposed. On the other hand what they were being exposed to, to me, felt like it was shortchanging but the potential benefits that I had been exposed to. Uh, and so I, I just came about with this term, McMindfulness, to sort of push back on our culture and its appetite for the spectacular and its, its hungering for a panacea and its, and its kind of colonialization where extraction happens almost spontaneously we like things and we pull them off the shelf and pull them out of context and then sort of glorify them in some kind of sensationalized way and i mean that's you know that's how i sometimes view what has happened here is like we don't need the rest of it is there's a kind of an implicit hubris and so you know part of my contention in the book gradual awakenings that i've recently wrote is is really to say okay well the mindfulness movement has opened the door for so many millions of people, and let's not forget the benefit that they're deriving from uh, lowered cholesterol and blood pressure to relaxation and stress reduction to even preventing the incidence of depressive relapse, for example, in the clinical literature. So, I, you know, there's no contending about that. But on the other hand, you know, our culture is still hell-bent on destroying the planet. So how do you reconcile those things? You, you, we have a spiritual um, technology, and, and the same is true with yoga. We have a spiritual technology that's been extracted. So we have the asanas, and we have mindfulness, the breathing, and, and paying attention. But what we've left behind is the what we were what we are now awakening to is called the contemplative science or the contemplative psychology out of which those things have been extracted, mm -hmm. and within those sciences and within those ancient psychologies, there you have the quantum, if you will, the quantum 
theories about self and about interconnectivity and about compassion and about how the mind works and about uh, blindness and unconsciousness. You have all this very sophisticated, deep architecture and methodology mm -hmm. that could really address some of the root causes for the ills that we see both in society and the environment and geopolitics and the rest and not and, and in the individual mind. And so McFindfulness for me was a was an attempt to raise in a little bit of a in a little bit of way the in a kind of provocative way in the way that I saw that blackboard statement. Right. It's a little provocative. It's like, oh, what's going on over there? I thought mindfulness was great. Well, what, when you say Mick mindfulness, suddenly it makes you wonder, like, well, well, what could possibly be wrong with it? And in a way, it's a little cheeky because it's not like it's something's wrong with it. It's not like a lie. Right, right. Uh, it's just opening the door to alert people to follow the breadcrumb trail a little closer so that they could come closer to the sciences that are there, not the religions. I'm not really all that interested in religions. Mm. Uh, I'm interested in the sciences, yeah. uh, the Adhyatma Vidya, it's called, in, in the Indian science is about restoring a human being to sanity and to health by yeah. way of introspection. And meditative technologies extracted from those sciences are in a way limited in what they can offer. And that doesn't mean that the health benefits that millions of people across the world are benefiting from is not neutralized. It's just now I'm contending that we are in a position after 30 years of promoting mindfulness that probably there is a um, you know growing interest in people that have now been practicing this for some time mm -hmm. where they could maybe take it a little further and what are they going to find they're going to they're going to start to find that there are deep sciences there and i think those deep sciences i think those hold a lot of promise i couldn't agree more and i'm so glad you mentioned that that's what i love about listening to the Dalai Lama speak, for example, he, he is a big proponent of science. And, and, you know, he said something to the effect of if science proves, you know, some element of Buddhism or Buddhism as a whole wrong, then, then we need to change with science. And I've always loved that about him. Or even Ramesh Balsakar, who I mentioned before, always wrote about the, uh, the comparison between what the sages of India had been teaching as far back as the Vedas and what our modern science is now saying and how they correlate so closely. They're just, again, different languages, but saying very, very similar things. And, uh, and I'm glad that you use that in your work. I think that is so important. And I always get excited when I hear people on the show talking about that. Um, as far back for me, my first introduction was what the bleep do we know? And I'm friends with the filmmaker, Betsy Chassie, and she's even admitted at the time they took liberties. They made stretches. It was, uh, it was, it, some of it was a bit of a reach. However, that was a great, great, uh, film that, that really sparked the interest in conversation in that regard. Not to say it hadn't been happening already, but, um, it certainly, I think, brought a lot of people's attention and interest into these fields and where they intersect. And, and that's, uh, I don't know, it's a kind of, for me, very exciting time to be alive and, and watch these two start to, in, in many regards, work more closely together rather than uh, fight one another. But we, 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 we are very similar as far as the, the not to, not to, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I'll just say not to talk shit about religion, but for me personally, my, yeah, my interests don't necessarily lie there as much either. Um, but coming back to your book, Miles, uh, it's kind of, it's based essentially, or a backdrop of it is with the Lam Rim, um, something that's a very, very deep text, but I, I appreciate the way that you bring it out and make it quite accessible in your writing. Um, so can you talk a bit about what, the Lam Rim is for those that aren't familiar. Again, I know a very big question, but um, you know, is there a way to nutshell that into this conversation? Sure, I'd love to. I mean, Lam Rim means gradual stages of the path, okay? Mm -hmm. And Lam Rim comes out of around the 10th century in Tibet, where 
Buddhism and various strands and teachings of Buddhism had already been around for centuries. And so if you could imagine in our own contemporary context in the West, you you might, you know, especially in New York City, for example, you could go down one block and there would be an Advaita center and another block, there would be a Zen center, another block, they're talking about self-care and another block, another another center, they're, they're practicing compassion, somewhere else they're doing prayer. So you start to, you start to get a sense of bewilderment that, uh, you know, are, how do all these disparate seeming traditions and teachings operate? You know, what, mm-hmm. What's the grand unifying theory, if you will, if, because I know you're a big fan of Wilbur. Yeah, you know, sure. like, so what the Lamrim does is kind of, it attempts, it was an attempt in the 10th century in Tibet. They, you know, the Tibetans were having some, what would they call contradictions in the teachings. They were a little miffed about, by, uh, you know, how do these things work together? On There's these things called renunciation where we're really trying to work with our addictions. And then there are these techniques for compassion. And then, of course, there are the high-level techniques of Tantra that, mm-hmm. you know, actually don't say don't stop. They just say transform your addictions and afflictions because they're really riding on potent energies. And so... They called on one of the great masters in India, and he, Alama Atisha, and Atisha came, and you know the 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 story goes, he he gathers up all of Buddha's teachings, but puts them into a kind of chronological order that reconciles some of these curiosities and confusions, and so the Lam Rim then becomes kind of like a guidebook. Mm-hmm. Or a roadmap. If you want to go from L.A. to New York or New York to L.A., you want to take the clearest path possible and you want to have a guide in your hand so that you can traverse the terrain without getting sidetracked or lost, right? And so if you want to navigate the spiritual landscape, you're going to have to confront certain addictions first before you open up into a new vista where there may maybe other challenges. And so when you get to those other challenges, maybe you need different tools. Mm-hmm. So the Lamrim organizes the psychological development of an individual along three main horizons. The first is taking care of your own mind and your own afflictions and making sure that you have some facility and confidence in interrupting your own uh, afflictive responses and clarifying your own distortions, so taking care of your own mind first. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't just end there like you arrive at a a milestone where you can smoke a cigar and say, I've made it. (laughs) Because from that that milestone, then you you look down and you you start to see, well, I, I have some confidence that I can work with on my own mind, which, which believe me, is not some small claim. That, that is a huge, huge leap from where we are in materialism, where the only climbing we're doing is the corporate ladder, for example. Yes. So, I mean, think about your soul is migrating through infinite life and infinite time, and it is finally discovered that buying more stuff and, and consuming more shit or being a robot to some corporate structure is completely disenfranchising to your innate capacity. And you set your 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 sights, and 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 uh, motivate yourself to actually work with your internal world, and you achieve some level of confidence that you can separate out the nasty bits and really cultivate uh, the the wonderful bits. And then you realize that's not the end of the game. You live with others, and others are really still afflicted, and they're really not having a good time. And you can't escape them and sit in and, and eat grapes in Greece while uh, while everybody else is really still tormented. So you have arrived at a milestone only to like take off your backpack and all the tools in it and take on another one for the for another leg of the journey. And mm-hmm. so there you have compassion practices. There you have resilience training. There you have a deeper psychology about the nature of interpersonal dynamics. And you learn to be a firefighter for humanity and going, you know, like you and me, if we, I don't know about you, maybe I don't speak for you, but I, I'm not one to, to run into a burning building. You know, to <laughs> me, that scares the shit out of me. Sure. However, yeah. there are human beings that have been trained that don't blink an eye when there's a burning building. Right. And so they're going in there. Why are they going in there? Well, they've been trained to override their afflictive instincts from evolution and actually motivated to take care of other people who are trapped there. And so that is a new horizon ideal. That's called the Bodhisattva mission, the altruistic mission. Right. So once you've achieved your uh, slumrim stage of what's called renunciation, I call it evolutionary self-care, 
because it basically suggests that you're you know you're an you're a you're an infinite being and and you could be distracted and misguided to chase fame and profit and all the rest of it but then you really you really come to understand that that's not the end game the end game is taking care of your mind mm -hmm. and then you become a firefighter for other living beings so that would be the middle stages and then finally you work towards the mulaklesha which is the final leg of the journey is going as deeply as you can to uproot the core affliction of i me mine and sense of separateness so this is this is what i i um try to describe in my book. It, it is essentially a roadmap in which the Buddha's teachings were organized and arranged in such a way that you can make your way uh, through the first phase of taking care of yourself and into the next phase of taking care of others, and finally into the third phase of really understanding the deep nature of reality so that you can be far more creative and competent mm -hmm. in being a kind of uh, a leader, you know, or a hero, you know, or heroine. Yeah, yeah. You know, so Miles, as I'm listening to you talk and I was reading your book, um, I, I had to laugh to myself as I think, where were you like 15, 16, 17 years ago as I stumbled my way uh, into Middletown, Connecticut? Um, and I forgot the name of the center. It's still there. I should know this. Uh, but it is a wonderful Tibetan uh, center. The the teacher there actually was the abbot of the Dalai Lama's um, monastery in Dharmasal and yeah. um, then the one in Ithaca, New York, and then retired to Middletown. And I remember, you know, I, I went in there because I was very new and interested in Buddhism and meditation. And I got the uh, three volumes of the great treaties on the stages of the path to enlightenment. And I did not know what the fuck was going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there I am, like these three thick, heady texts. And uh, and I showed up, you know, every Tuesday were teachings every Sunday. And I was there for a few months until I was finally just like, I don't get it. I am in over my head. Similar to when I first started reading Ken Wilber. You know, I'm like, what is yeah. going on here? But now, many, many, many years later... I can look back and start to make some semblance of sense in it. But that's the beauty in, in what you're doing. And in this book, uh, you know, Gradual Awakening, is that you're presenting these otherwise very difficult concepts for at least someone like me to comprehend when I'm reading these very certainly brilliant works of ancient uh, teachers. But they're just not uh, transmitted in a way that, again, for me in those early stages were easy to comprehend and who knows i still have the those books and i have not <laughs> i think i have some kind of traumatic uh you know uh association with them, them. Yeah, yeah exactly they're still on my bookshelf but i've never tried to go back and read them but maybe after reading your work i'm going to uh, i'll have to crack them open and see if they make any more sense but i again my my hat's off to you because that is not easy stuff to to take and then make uh, or present in an accessible way, which you do. So I really love uh, that that that's what you're doing in your work, or at least part of what you're doing in your work and, and well, in your thanks, book. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Thanks so much. You know, um, I mean, I have two responses to that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it is called gradual awakening. Okay? Yes. Yeah. Which which I you know it's not a it's not it's no small thing. Uh, I don't know how long you've been doing this work, but I do think it's important that I alert to the, to my students, for example, that there's no quick fix here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's been a lot of spiritual teachings that have been co-opted by marketing machines that pitch and sell to people some deliverance. And that's no more true than any other place than here in the United States. I think there is a kind of inclination both from the, the popular culture that want our hunger. And then there is a all too easy pitch that if you do this in six weeks, you'll be fine and you'll lose weight or you'll be happier. Happiness, 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 but uh, instantaneous happiness, right? And so uh, I have been around the block now over 20 years doing this stuff and I, I have had you know one of the hardest years of my life the, just this year. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so I think it's important and one of my motivations is to alert people that this is a lifelong commitment. Mm -hmm. You know, there are sp some spiritual teachings that talk about a, a flash of light and it brings you into the now and everything's going to be fine. 
Um, I'm not an advocate of that kind of, I think it's misleading. I think, I think for a few, select few, maybe a spontaneous flash of brilliance has happened. Mm. But for the rest of us, if we're sitting around going, where's my flash of light? Um, the alternative is, is nothing happens. Uh, whereas this approach, the Lom Rim, is get on, get on a path. It doesn't yeah. have to be the Tibetan one, but get on a path and, and commit to it for your whole life. And and if you don't arrive at the end where you're supposed to uproot the middle of the Mula Klesha and, and be enlightened, at least you have you would have spelled, spent your precious human life doing something meaningful. And along the way, you would have understood um, more about yourself and others, and you would have become at least a little bit modicum more patient and a little a little wiser and a little more patient. And that doesn't mean at any step of the path you're not in pain. It just means that you're maturing and you're growing. It's no longer about the pleasure principle. It's about the purpose principle. Yes. You're having a more purposeful existence as a human being. You're becoming more of what you're meant to be. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the other thing about the language in this, I mean, I do have to hand it to my teachers, you know, Bob Thurman and Joe Luizzo. If you just mm-hmm. look at my lineage, if you will, like Bob Thurman, Rob, Professor Robert Thurman, was the first Westerner to be ordained a Tibetan Buddhist monk from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So you could say that he's the land bridge from Tibet to the West yeah. in terms of this transmission of this kind of curriculum, the Lam Rim curriculum, if you will. And and but Bob, what Bob does is he he did some very revolutionary things. You know, mm-hmm. I would I would very much encourage people getting one of Bob's early books called The Jewel Tree of Tibet. Yes. And which is a Lam Rim book, okay? Uh, and and it's one that I devoured and read several times. And what he does is he uses language that far greater numbers of people in the West could really receive and and appreciate. I mean, his it's poetics. It's yeah. about jazz. It's about learning your scales and then being able to play. And jo- and Bob Thurman can really fucking play. Yes, he can. <laughs> and and he can entertain and he can make it vibrant and he can attract even the most skeptical to l- disarm and and feel something uh, feel vital from these Lamrim teachings. And so I think that is the first land bridge away from the kind of hardcore Tibetan to, you know, to a more modern, modern Western sensibility, but not doing what happened with the meditation with Herbert Benson. It's not a reduction. It's a language game. That's what we're talking about. Bob didn't tinker with the tradition. He, he preserved the tradition. I see him as a preserver, Yeah. Um, but he played with the language so that, it became more poetic and accessible. And then Bob trained uh, my teacher, Joe Luizzo, who ended up being a psychiatrist and medical doctor, who made another step forward in the evolution, I think, and took Bob's liberties. I mean, he's well-trained. He is through and through a Buddhist scholar. He is a a Sanskrit Tibetologist trained at Columbia. There's no question he's put his time in, and there's no question that his... Uh, you know, he's done his work in terms of uh, scholastic studies, but then he he did another language game himself where he medicalized and psychologicalized and nuanced with neuroscience, the Lamrim. So I am, you know, I met these cats when I was 20, so I'm like born and raised suckling at the teat of this kind of um, artistic liberty mm people that are well steeped in in Buddhist literature and yet have have the faculty to present these things in a way that tantalizes and awakens and is playful and creative and and yet, you know, and, and, and accessible. And so, I mean, the book, my book, Gradual Awakening, I think is, you know, my humble offering to continue that line of I've I've spent 20 years now with the Tibetans. I love them deeply. I bow my head to their tradition and their culture. I will, to my last breath, do everything I can to alleviate the suffering of that community who have bared witness and experienced one of the greatest holocausts of the last century and, and have bequeathed to humanity very openly and charitably some of the most profound wisdom tra- traditions that have ever existed on this planet. Uh, however, I I also struggled for a very long time, as you did, with some of with understanding those very long texts in a in, a, in an archaic language, 
through a translator, no less. I mean, I clocked my hours trying to study yeah. with some of these Tibetans through translation, and I racked my brain. And you know what? I, I wouldn't do it any other different. I mean, I think, you know, people nowadays who get a quick translation, uh, direct transmission are really fortunate. But for me, I needed to I needed to put in the time to really understand and appreciate the things that I have come to learn. Mm. Um, that being said, I really, you know, I hope that people do get a taste for the Lam Rim that in a way that makes sense to them. And if, and if, I mean, when you put work out, there'll definitely be, you know, people that are not so pleased, you know, maybe the Orthodox religious community won't like some of my word choices or the ways that I present things. And on the other side, you know, it will still look too religious or whatever in terms of the secular audience who just want to keep with mindfulness. And you know, they'll look at the book, you know, the cover of my book is some mala beads, you know. So, <laughs> uh, so you know, you'll get, you'll get these people that are, you know, on either side of the spectrum more entrenched in their own kind of worldview. And, you know, you just have to be who you are. And for me, this is, I can say, this is a true expression of my path and my commitment to humanity and what I, what I felt called to share. Well, Miles, well, I, I bow deeply to you. I thank you for your very authentic and humble message. Um, it certainly shines through in everything you've shared. I absolutely love that uh, Bob was a root teacher for you. He is definitely a friend of the show. I had a privilege, uh, or I was privileged to meet him and visit him back in 2010 in his uh, office in Columbia and to see you know, just the very, very ancient text that he has. Uh, that was a real treat for me. And he had also just gotten a tattoo for his wife that he was very excited to show me because <laughs> I'm heavily tattooed. He's like, hey, check this out. So, you know, not only is he scholarly, he, like you said, he's entertaining. He connects with people, a great wisdom teacher. Um, so we love Bob on the show and the Be Here Now Network. And, uh, you know, don't take my word for it, anyone listening, that this is a great book. I'm looking at the list of endorsements you have, and I mean, from, from Bob to Richard Gere, no big deal, um, but Sharon Salzberg, uh, a lot of friends of the show here, and Sharon has her show on the network, Elena Brower, I'll be speaking with her tomorrow for the show. Damian oh, tell Nichols. Elena I said hi. I mean, that's I a will. very powerful woman. That's yes. a very, I mean, I look up to her, and she's a, a great entrepreneur and a, and yeah. a, a, a beautiful leader uh, for all, for, yeah. for everybody, and uh, please give her my best regards. I will. Yeah, I'm excited to have you guys back-to-back. -back. It's really great. And then some others, Damien Eccles, another friend of the show, Noah Levine, of course. He wrote the forward for my first book. Ethan Nickturn, he was, I think, the second guest I ever had on the show. Uh, and then your teacher, uh, Joseph, and, you know, so... People don't give praise if they don't mean it. Um, so, again, don't take my word for it. This book is incredible. Miles, I think you went above and beyond in just your presence on the show and and uh, and showing or, or sharing with our listeners just a peek of what is held within the pages of Gradual Awakening. An absolutely fantastic book. The one thing uh, I didn't share, Miles, I, I forgot to ask you, it wasn't in your bio, is your website. Where can people find out more about you and the work you're doing? Yeah, it's just my name, www.milesneal.com, M-I-L-E-S, and for Nancy, E-A-L-E.com. It's currently, as of today, August 2nd, under development, so you can expect uh, the brand new launch of my new book, and the new website and the book tour and all the things that I'll be doing along the way and uh, probably within the week or by next week. So maybe by the time this show airs, you know, the everything will be out. And uh, and I really I want to just if I we have a few moments yeah, just great. to thank thank you for having me. I know you, we have a nice story about uh, trying to put this <laughs> podcast on and uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the teaching out of it, Chris is really like timing is everything. Yeah. And, uh, and we are, I mean, I am, uh, it just showed my own impatience as a human being and my lack of trust that, uh, but the stars did align eventually. And I'm very, very blessed and fortunate to have time with you and to hear about you and to share these stories. And, you know, if there weren't any time, I know we could kick back and, and this, this conversation could just continue. Absolutely. I also want to just shout out to Alice Peck who yeah. both, you know, put us together and, and worked on both of our books and, yep. and is a, uh, a huge inspiration to me and a wordsmith, uh, par excellence. And, uh, without her help, uh, literally gradual awakening because of my short uh, shortness and confidence my 
my own ability to write and my own, um, you know, my own lack of confidence in delivering this. If she didn't push me and she didn't take it, an older draft, which was just going to be an ebook uh, and, and send it to the publisher, it would have never manifested. So, you know, thank you, Alice. And thank you to all the angels out there who make everything happen for every single being every single day. All the, uh, you know, the, the people we don't have uh, time to name. I mean, life is a beautiful miracle and a testament to how interconnected we are. And there's no, I know you share this with me, Chris, that any uh, success that we have is really owed and, uh, and a testament to all the living beings uh, that go, that, that make, you know, offer their precious life force to make these things happen. Yeah. And I do just do hope that along the way in the book tour that people do benefit from this book and that it really brings uh, humanity closer and, and puts me into con- direct contact with new people whom can inspire me and help me grow and i uh, hope i can return the favor and i hope uh, you and i uh, this is that we'll have many more conversations and our paths will intersect many more times thank you so much for all your work uh miles thank you what a beautiful sentiment to end on i know it's a case of not if but when our paths cross in person i very much look forward to meeting you thank you for those kind words about alice because yes what an inspiration Two two of my books would not have come to fruition without her as well so much love to dear alice peck please check her work out and uh, i'll just say to end this up if you're listening to this on the be here now network scroll down and you will see the link to miles website so either you can type it in but if you want to just scroll down the link will be right there uh, we will also have miles book linked so you can um, find it uh, it'll be available everywhere it's with sounds true a tremendous publisher who did my second book so you'll be able to find it anywhere books are sold uh, the release date is september 18th if i remember correctly is that that's around? right yep perfect yep. so and uh, we uh we launch via at tibet house on the 12th of wednesday the 12th of september and that will be live stream so you can join us from anywhere and we're going to have a ritual, not just a book talk, but a ritual to launch the book. And there's a whole bonus uh, chapter that's available on my website. Once you purchase the book, you're you're free to access an entire new chapter that sounds true, was so gracious in, in offering me. So that will be on the website, on the, on the book page. Uh, so thank you very much. All right, Miles. Well, thank you. The book again, Gradual Awakening, The Tibetan Buddhist Path of Becoming Fully Human. I can't recommend it enough. And until next time, this is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.